This last year, I was exposed to a really good book called Team of Teams by General Stanley McChrystal. In the book, he and his co-authors talk about his leadership of a special task force in Iraq. This was a group of the best of the best from various armies around the world. They were incredibly elite, well-trained, coordinated, and equipped soldiers. On paper, they should have been fighting terrorists in Iraq like the Steelers versus the New Brighton High School football team. The problem was... They were not doing well in Iraq. This loosely affiliated, volunteer, barely trained, and poorly coordinated group of men and women were pulling off more missions to greater effect than the elite soldiers could put together. What McChrystal's team learned was that the military was built for efficiency. It was designed to create soldiers that conformed to orders that were meticulously planned from high command. The team could get almost surgical in how decisive it was in its actions. But their enemy was adaptable and complex. In other words, they were fighting. They they were perfectly built for a war that they were not in. In the 1950s, 60s, and into the 70s, organizations were built for efficiency. They were built for efficiency. But what McChrystal says is that the key marker of successful organizations in the future will be adaptability. Adaptability. This is so key because the world is so complex that the core goal of organizational structures and functioning has to be its ability to consistently adapt to surroundings and opportunities. And many organizations, such as the military, were designed for exactly the opposite. They were designed to be slow to change, deliberate in action, and led by only a few. And so in Iraq, what General McChrystal had to do is help turn his team into a team of teams, where the leadership sat in the middle and teams could make their own decisions, and the the leadership fundamentally became the information passing among all the teams. Now, McChrystal and his colleagues help organizations do much the same thing because we're finding, and they found when they came back, that the same trouble that they were having as a military unit overseas, organizations are having in the world today. Okay? The, the world is just changing so fast, and it's so complex, that what we need to be is really adaptable, and yet our organizations are built to stay the same. This has huge implications for our churches. While the world around us has changed, much of what we do in the church has stayed relatively the same. And it's been a great source of comfort for a lot of us, right? That we've had to change jobs and we've had to change careers and our kids and grandkids have moved away and all this world has been so shook up. And yet, what's the one steady thing that we can rely on? The church. Our churches are built for the 1960s. And the problem is the 1960s are not coming back. In fact, the 1960s are getting smaller and smaller in the rearview mirror as we speed quicker and quicker into a much more complex and ever-changing future. I begin with this because I think this is not just an organizational problem. This has huge implications for businesses, has huge implications for government, has huge implications for churches. But we as people need to be adaptable, changeable, moldable in the world that we live in today. 
The problem is, we don't like change. We learn to avoid change. In fact, even little babies don't like change. Okay, if you've ever been around a little baby and you change their routine so they're up too late or they uh, they're get up too early or they're not sleeping in their bed, babies just go, like right away, we as people, before we can even walk, are not real keen on change. Then as we get older, it seems to get worse. In fact, I think this is biological. Your body is, is trained to not like change. Okay, if the temperature in here dropped any more than it is right now, you would notice and you'd be like, what just happened? Or if the temperature rose five degrees, your body is trained to say, there's something wrong. There's a fire somewhere because there's a change. Or if there was a loud noise in the back, all of a sudden, that was perfect timing. Okay? All of a sudden, everybody like, looks around like, what was that? You know, you don't like change. Your body is wired to not like change. Even our body and our reflexes tells us that change is bad. And sometimes we say we would like change, This is New Year's Eve, and some of you are probably making New Year's resolutions. But those rarely work for anybody, as I said to the children's sermon, except for the gym memberships that everybody buys this month and doesn't use for five months, and then finally cancels. Even the most beautiful things in life often come with remorse. We struggle to change. We fear change. There's often a grief reaction. It's it's a lot when we change. It's a lot like grief, like losing someone. We are aware that as some things change, we lose something. Even in good things, we give up something. That's why one of the most beautiful changes in our lives is is having a baby as a family. But yet so often, that's followed by postpartum depression. Right? Okay? Some of it's lack of sleep. But some of it is realizing how different our life is going to be because of this change. And even though it's great, we're aware of the loss. This is why buying a house, which is such a great moment, is often followed by buyer's remorse. We often, when we do great things, remember that we're also losing something. This feeling of grief, loss, and sadness, these are often stronger when the change is sudden and unexpected. I think it's because we can't prepare ourselves for them, so they hit us harder. These are often... Also worse, when there's a strong sense of unknown in the process. When we don't know what's next, the change is harder because there's all these things we can worry about. And if you're like me, there's all kinds of worst case scenarios that go off in your head as you're trying to prepare for whatever you can't prepare for. Right. And you make it worse on yourself because you're trying to figure all that out and you can't possibly figure all that out. I think part of the subtle or even subconscious problem with change is also that change exposes us. When we are forced to fit into a different mold, live life a different way, suddenly the cracks and weaknesses in our lives, the pain is exposed. We often see our own sin. We can't help but notice our fear, our shame or regrets. We can't hold in our sadness our pride, or our carelessness. And our deepest scars and deepest fears are suddenly out there so that we must notice them, but also we're worried in these moments of grief or change or sorrow that maybe the world around us might notice them too and suddenly see the cracks and the weaknesses in our own lives. So we don't like change. And we don't like grief. 
But I notice a pattern in the Bible. That God uses those times of change and transition to change us and to shape us. Like clay that is suddenly softened so that we can mold it once again. God uses these moments to, to, to mold his people into something new. Like Israel, as they come out of the promised land and have to relearn how to live again. And again, as they go to exile. And I look at how Jesus shapes his disciples through their experience of his death, resurrection, ascension, and through Pentecost. This is a major change for them that they're not prepared for, and they're a little freaked out by, and they're a little scared at the moment. And yet Jesus uses this time to shape and to mold them. I had a seminary professor tell me, that, uh, tell us as a class, that when you became a pastor, you think you're going to love weddings and hate funerals. But he said the opposite is going to be true. The more you do ministry, the more you're going to love funerals and you're going to hate weddings. Now, I don't hate weddings, um, but I do appreciate funerals so much more. Because you know what? At a wedding, nobody's moldable. Nobody's moldable. Nobody really wants to listen to the pastor what they have to say. In fact, if you try to sit here and remember, if you're married, what the pastor said at your wedding, you probably can't even remember it. Okay? The pastor at a wedding is basically like the, the whole. Okay? It's just part of the festivities. But at a funeral, at a funeral, people are moldable. They want to listen. They need help and encouragement. And it's in those moments that as a pastor and as a church, you can feed into people's souls. And so I have found that people are more adaptable in these moments of change and moments of grief. And for some of us, they're very short. We don't let them be exposed too much. And we try to just pack it in and get on with life so that we don't have to go through that change. And you know what? It's a missed opportunity because God never wastes those chances to mold us and to shape us, even though we sometimes do. This is my long way of talking about today because today is a day of change. It's my last day in this pulpit, last day before you, and my heart is heavy. And even though I have really felt God's call for me to go somewhere else and feel like it's time, I'm sad to leave you all. For nearly eight years, I have been your pastor. When I began, I was just Jordan, the student seminary kid that came in every once in a while. And I remember at some point, I don't know when it happened, but at some point I started moving from Jordan to Pastor Jordan without even saying anything. And I got introduced as my pastor, or some of you that are older started to use preacher. People would say, oh, the preacher's here. The preacher's calling me. Um, I grew up in this church. I became a pastor in this church. And so on this day of change, let me one last time as your pastor try to speak some truth to you about change. About how to deal with change. Change is hard. It always is, and I feel the sting of it today. But let me say a few things to guide you, not only in this transition but in all kinds of transition and changes in your life. This has been hard for my kids. My kids are sad today. But you know what? they got to learn this because this happens again. It happens in life. So let me say a few things. It's easy when there's a change to either shut down or spring into major action. We either say there's so much to do that I, I can't even handle it. I better not do any of it. Or we go, there is so much to do, I better do all of it today. (laughs) 
You know this reaction? In my house, we have both the reactions because my wife is like, I got so much to do, I better not do anything today. And I'm like, let's do this. Okay. You know what? The healthy response is somewhere probably in the middle, right? Probably in the middle. So my first two points come very much from two sides of the same coin, and they're both from one of my life's verses. It's just a little verse in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I know I've shared it over the years. It's just, it's one of my core verses. It says, I planted, it's 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted Apollos water, but God brought the growth. I'll read it again. I planted, Apollos watered, but God brought the growth. The people at Corinth are fighting. And they're fighting in part, they're fighting over a lot of stuff actually. But they're fighting in in great part because of the leadership of the church. Some people are excited because they were the ones when Paul first planted that church that were there and got saved by him and baptized him. And then after Paul left, there's this really dynamic speaker named Apollos that comes in and he gets them all fired up. And some people are like, oh, but I'm one of Apollos's people. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm one of Apollos's crew and they're fighting. And then some people say, well, you know what? I'm better than both of you. I'm part of the Jesus crew and I follow Jesus right to the source. And they're going on and on about this. And Paul thinks, it's ridiculous and stupid. Paul says, well, who am I? Who, who's Apollos? What do we do? And his metaphor is this. I planted. I planted the church. I planted all kinds of seeds in this community. And then Apollos came, came by and watered it and helped it to grow. But you know who made it grow? God made it grow. God made it grow. I got news for you. Even a lot of you that are really good gardeners in this church, you can't make it grow. You can set up the environment that from some way the plant has to grow and the environment's got to do something that you can't totally control. This is one of my life verses because I need to be reminded that I don't bring growth and I don't bring life. I don't save. I just point to a savior. And we have had a good run these eight years. We did a lot around the property, a lot to strengthen the leadership and culture of this church and to strengthen our worship. Great things have been done here in my time, but I didn't do them. And you better be clear as I leave that I didn't do them. God did it. God brought the growth. God brought the growth. And so my first message to you is to trust God. Trust the one who brings the growth. And guess what? He can keep bringing the growth. He's got more growth in store. The one who brings the growth isn't leaving. You can trust in God. And when you are in change and when you are in grief and when you feel overwhelmed, continue to throw yourself back into the arms of your loving Savior and trust, trust that he cares for you. Trust that he's with you. I believe that God has much more to do in and through you. Your story is not over. I am just not a character in the next few chapters. But there are, here's the other side to that same verse. The fact that God brought the growth did not allow Paul and Apollos off the hook for the work that they had to do. Okay? This is the balancing act. Okay? You don't get off the hook. Okay? Just because God brought the growth doesn't mean Paul doesn't have to plant. He can just sit at home and not plant. Or Apollos, don't worry about watering. I got this, says God. No. God brings the growth. That does not mean that Paul and Apollos aren't, are off the hook for the work they have to do. They have to do what they are called to do. They have to be faithful to their part. 
And I have tried at this church to be faithful to my part, and I know so many of you have. And moving forward, you're going to have to keep being faithful. And some of you are going to have to step up into some new and different roles. And some of you may have to pass on some roles you've been doing to do more important things that you're called to do. You're not off the hook because God brings the growth. But the good news is, it's not all up to you. God does bring the growth. It's not your job to bring the growth. But it is your job to be faithful to the things God puts before you to do. So make sure whenever you're in change and grief, that you do that. That you pay attention to where God's leading and you faithfully step through whatever is next. And God never gives you the whole plan. You might as well know that now. God never gives you a plan. He says, I will give be, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. That is not a lot of light. Lamp to feet, light to path. That's right here. And it's like a headlights when you drive down the road. You've got to drive a little bit before you see what's next. Your headlights don't show you the whole path. You've got to drive and your headlights show you what's next. You drive. That's how God is. He gives you your next step and you take it. He gives you your next step and you take it. And you just keep marching with whatever is before you. You've got to be able to balance that. To trust God and keep stepping. You miss either of those or overemphasize either of those and you run into problems. Paul writes, as he, as he writes these words, he's also concerned about the lack of unity at the church of Corinth. Division and isolation are always problematic in the Christian faith. And it's all too natural when we go through grief, when we go through loss, when we go through change, to want to isolate. I just don't want to be around all these people. I'm too sad. Okay, I don't want to be around all these people. There's too much stress. And here's the thing. What you need is exactly the opposite. Okay, what you need is exactly the opposite. What you need to do is not isolate, but you need to get around people that can insulate you, that can protect you, that can care for you in this time. To not feel so close, to go it alone, to split from community so that we don't have to share our grief with others is a mistake. When we go through change, we need others. We need outside perspective We need shoulders to cry on and we need to be a shoulder for others. So as your pastor, I would encourage you in the new year to trust God, to be faithful and step up and do your part. And also to really lean into community, not isolate from it. These are always important things in change and grief. And our key to making us adaptable as we have to negotiate the changes in our world moving forward. Now let me speak, not as your pastor, but as a friend saying goodbye. I want to thank you all so much for these last eight years. You have taught me how to be a pastor from being a young punk who didn't know what he was doing. You have taught me to be a man, to be a husband, and to be a father. And I appreciate how much you all have poured into me and my family. Um, So many people have already given cards and shared with me in person um, that I have ministered to you over the years. um, But I can't imagine that I ministered to you all more than you ministered to me and to my family. Um, These have been formative years. I mean, I uh, had two of my children in this place. And even my oldest spent two-thirds of his life here. Um, You have taken such good care of the Rimmers from the House of Grace, 
to the gifts, to the cards, to the encouragement and prayers along the way. You have loved me well. You have loved my family well. And I know that you can continue to love well whoever God places here in the future. Thank you all for your hard work, your laughter, your prayers, and your joys over these years. They have meant so much. Love you all very much. And it's sad today, not because I'm leaving the church, not because I'm leaving friends, but really because I feel like I'm leaving family. I'm leaving grandparents, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, some crazy uncles too, by the way. There's some crazy uncles in here. I love you all and will miss you very much. 